Are INGOs inflexible, incapable of innovating and scaling when circumstances change to the point where they are possibly facing extinction? And are NGOs forever destined to chase the funding they can get, rather than what they really need to make an impact? Why are some NGOs incapable of making and measuring the impact that they desire to achieve, despite all the time and money they invest in their programs? Hi, I'm Chris Mazur-Natrup, founder and MD of MZN International, a social consulting firm whose mission is to help those who do good do it better. And I'll be joining Tosca for a three-part short podcast series in which we'll have a candid, thought-provoking, and somewhat provocative conversation about the future of the nonprofit sector and the mindsets and mental models that shape the organizations of today. And I am Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, Principal Consultant at Five Oaks Consulting, where I help leaders of international nonprofits and philanthropic actors turbocharge their ability to lead dramatic and useful change. In part one of our series, Chasing Innovation, Chris and I explore if nonprofits are at risk of becoming obsolete and what they need to do to survive and thrive in a modern digital world. We discuss what leaders can do to transform their organizations into better equipped problem solvers and innovators while the world is facing a climate crisis, a pandemic and a myriad of other challenges. And in part two, chasing funding, we delve into the topic of the never-ending funding cycle and the seemingly outdated business model in which most INGOs are forced to adopt. We'll assess why some organizations continue to grow whilst others stagnate and what nonprofit leaders can do to make their funding and their business model more sustainable. And in part three of our series, Chasing Impact, we ask ourselves if nonprofits can truly make and measure the impact they set out to achieve. We explore why some organizations do not create the impact they desire, despite the time and expenses they make to invest in their programs and what they can do to create a more learning and evidence-driven culture. We're looking forward to having you with us. Hello and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hey, Chris. So today we're going to talk about chasing funding and the provocative question there is, will it ever end? Right? So I wanted to talk first about 
You told me recently something that surprised me. I am not a specialist in business development or fundraising, but I have always assumed that diversification of revenues is almost always a better route, a better strategy to go because it seems to be both a safer and a richer way to go, if you will. But you told me actually that I was wrong. So tell me more about that. I would never tell you that you're wrong, Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, we need to have a bit of a heightened impression and a heightened idea of what income portfolio and income diversification actually means. And you're, you're diving straight into a massive leadership conversation here about how do we fund our mandate and how what do we want to do? This is a big question. This is going to ultimately but directly affect the lives of all of our beneficiaries and directly of all of our employees. So I appreciate you starting easy here, you know, <laughs> not really. This is a big, big question. Okay. But, but why, why is it not true that diversification of revenues is automatically the best way to go? You actually told me NGOs have to figure out what are they good in, what type of funding have they pursued with the greatest success and then hone in on that more. So let's assume you're in a social mission, that you're in a client mission where you need to grow, where you need to expand your scale, yeah, uh, in order to achieve your strategy, in order to achieve the societal goods that we want to produce, be it child rights, be it climate, be whatever, yeah? Let's assume there is a scaling need and therefore an increased funding need. That's the big assumption. That may be true of many, but not all. If that is the case, then together with my colleagues at Enzalan, we looked at how NGOs became big over the last 30 years. And um, there is, you're right, there's this huge myth about income diversification is good and you want to be more safe and secure by diversifying your income sources. Right. But the fact of the matter is, whether we found in our research is, when we looked at the financial data going back you know, a good 50 to 20 years, that those INGOs which are large, that have scaled, that have grown significantly, have done so almost all of them on one dominant form of funding. Dominant defined as 60% of funding comes from this type, not the single source, this type of funding. So that clearly works for them, uh, or at least it has delivered the financial gains. Um, the question is, is that an enduring safe strategy? If you plan to achieve your mission in the next five years, then I think you can do that, you know? the risk of losing that type of funding in five years is not as big as losing it over the next 15 years. So that's a, maybe a manageable risk to take. If you are, however, thinking we're going to have to work on this problem, on this mission in this country for the next 10 years plus, then of course you do need to diversify, but by type, not necessarily by source of donor. Ah, that's interesting. By type and not by source. Yes. So what good does it do you if you have, say, 95% of, uh, if you have a thousand different donors, but 95% of them are all grants? And if grant funding is changing, well, that's not very diversified, is it? No. It is much better if you have, say, a thousand donors and 400 of them are commercial contracts, or there is some earned money, or there is some fundraising unrestricted, and then, say, 600 of them are grants. That type of conversation. If within the grants, the 600 grants that you are aiming at, there is one donor that dominates the grants, mm -hmm. then that is not necessarily a terrible thing. 
if your mission uh, demands that or if there is just no alternative, uh, but you can manage from that, that much better. The point is, yes, diversify, but diversify smart and by type. And if you found a source of funding that clearly works, then pursue it and optimize it. I reduce your cost of acquisition, drive the, the post awards higher. In other words, if you found an income source, your competitors don't. Or if you found an income source, if you found a weakness in your competitors, well, stop looking and start pounding it. Okay. And I want to come back to competitors later, but also the opposite of that. But first, I want to talk also a little bit about when we as NGOs think about how to generate revenue, do we need to also link that more explicitly maybe than we currently do to the question for what type of impact? are we seeking, right? So I was recently educated by Steve Zimmerman, a big shout out to him at uh, Spectrum Nonprofit Services here in the US about that element. He says, nonprofits need to be clear what type of impact they want to have and therefore what kind of revenue they need to generate. How do you see that? I completely agree with you there. I mean, um, you see it from yourself. If your mission requires a lot of adaptation and change and agility, in how you implement, where you implement, and what activities you do and time them, then you need funding that matches that funding criteria. In, in this particular example, flexibility, in which case a predefined grant where you have to deliver a program according to a relatively fixed timeline is probably not the best tool to, to fund and to buy the impact that you need. So I agree with you, Mark. I mean, you, you know from your from your NGO, Soska, you've, you've worked with a ton of them. How many of the program managers have said, look, I know that X percent of what we do isn't working, but we can't change it for the next year because that's the contract. Yes, yes. Of course, that's a daily finding. Now, another dimension that I've been doing some thinking on lately is what's the nexus between how to generate revenue and what is our cost model? right? Mm -hmm. I have a sense that many NGOs don't really track, and I'm not saying this is easy, by the way, mm -hmm. or, or that I would know exactly how to do it, but they don't really track what is the cost per unit of output, right? Mm -hmm. Or per mm -hmm. unit of benefits that we generate. So what is our uh, that cost model? And I'm thinking that that also should be linked to the question of business development and how we chase funding. Well, I, I completely agree that we need to be more intentional about how we fund and how we build our organization. Ultimately, what I think you're saying here is we need to have, we need to be able to draw a straight line from the impact we want to generate to the organization we need to generate that impact to the resources we need to build that organization. And that's a, that's a pretty direct line. This is not rocket science. And you know it yourself from the NGOs that you work with. That, Nexus isn't necessarily always thought through because many INGOs focus on this programmatic theory of change, but sort of forget the organizational theory of change, where that linkage is, you know, is the, uh, the logical framework is very similar. And um, you know, you're an experienced practitioner, Tosca. There's a lot of nonprofit and good organizations that have fantastic programs that do not come to fruition, that do not, they're not putting their best foot forward because they're doing what they can get funded rather than what they really need to do. That is not a problem with the program. That is a problem with the funding. 
So you're saying funding is, is, and how you chase funding to use the title of this episode is critical. And you say NGOs have more influence on that, have more lev- leverage over that than they often will either realize or at least also admit. But how does the cost model work into this equation then? Do you think that what our cost models are has to also be linked back to how we pay for that? I've got a pretty radical answer here. Okay. Don't care is my answer. Meaning Meaning? that it takes an inspired leader. If you, the cost and the operating model are a result of what you need to do, not the other way around. And I think many leaders who join and we, I mean, we are leaders here. And I'm happy to take, you know, a conversation this way. Take the organization they have, take the money they can get and do the best with it. That is a huge, I mean, kudos to them. There's a huge difference between doing that and saying, okay, what we need to do and the current funding partners we have do not allow us to really generate the impact. You know, in the, what is it now, nine years, eight years, eight years that we only have left for the SDGs. To make it more pragmatic, work with a Scandinavian organization a year ago, or two years ago now. And they could always get more project funding from their core donors. They've been well-known, established, you know, uh, big home market, uh, business continuity wasn't a problem. And it took one inspired leader, you know, to wasn't even the director, frankly, who um, and she said, look, we know that what we do is not as efficient, effective, not as impactful as what we can do, but because we don't get the type of funding but I don't know how to change it. And after only six months of doing some workshops, of working with each other, we put the onus not on what we can do with the funding we have, but what funding we must get, uh, must have in order to do what we need to do. And that flip in, in the workshops, in the strategy, in leading with that purpose from the top into the middle of the management and then from the bottom into the middle as well, I saying this is not what we need to do. That resolve evolved eventually into a completely changed funding and income portfolio that I could have not foreseen eight months, six months before we started working. It ended up with them selling certain products on the open market to raise an income, basically have a business. It evolved them saying no to certain grants, viciously pursuing commercial contracts, And it changed the culture of the organization, but it made it far more impactful because, Oscar, like like you do in your work, the starting point is not what can we get and therefore what are we allowed to do as a result? Yeah, yeah. What do we need to do? And then let's get the funding partners we need. Interesting. So I'm wondering if this is linked also to what an earlier guest in my own podcast, Nell Edgington, uh, we'll put the link to that uh, episode in our, our show notes for this episode, what she talked about in terms of abundance thinking. Now, some people would think that that's a bit fluffy, right? But abundance thinking is, is the idea of don't assume that there is very little of what you need. Assume that there is much more than what you can ever absorb and go after that. I was a little skeptical at the time when Nell and I t- talked about it, but in a way, your point of view is related to that. Does that right. make sense? Well, I just think the leaders I enjoy working with, and Tosca, you told me that as well. Do you want to be 
an acceptor of the status quo and do as best as you can, or do you are you prepared to take to lead with integrity and translate that into measurable action and saying we need to change our business model because our impact, our mandate demands it. And the business model, just to clarify the terms, you have the mandate, you have the business model, that is how we do things. And then you have the, the funding model, how do we fund the things we need to do? Mm-hmm. And strangely, I mean, when you point it out like that, you should always lead from the top, right? What do we? What, what's our impact model? What do we need to do? What's our mission here? But I would say, I mean, what's your, what's your uh, experience at Tosca? In my view, there are still many organizations which manage from the operating model. I Here is what we have. This is what we can do. I was going to say that the operating model comes below in this quote-unquote hierarchy, below the, the business model, right? Yes, the, the operating model is nothing. It's a fancy management slang of saying, how do we do the things we need to do? Right. No more right. than that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, to put it very bluntly, the business model is encompassing, and the and below that is just the, the funding portfolio. So, I mean, Tosca, what's what's your experience? I'd I'd love to hear that. I know there are many organizations that are managing and administrating the funding they can get, rather than pursuing the funding they need. Okay, so this is almost, if I pull it up at a certain level, the difference between leading and managing, right? is leading what I call also in my tagline, dramatic and useful change. And managing is managing the status quo and the order of today. And that's what I I hear you say. That's how I would respond from my uh, work on leadership. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that, Pascal, because it's a wonderful way you put it. There are those who are managing the funding they can get, and therefore they end up moderating the problem they want to address. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who are leading, sometimes at risk, you know, investing into uncertain outcome. They're leading and pursuing the funding they need, and therefore they have a shot at solving the problem they try to address yeah. rather than just moderating it. Have a shot. I'm also seeing this as linked to another point, and that is that I think often in our sector, our NGOs have a real problem in honing in on what is truly their unique value proposition. So we see that in when strategies are formed, that NGOs have a difficulty in making a real choice in their strategy because strategy ultimately is about choice making. I don't see that often happening. There is a difficulty that we have in saying no uh, when it comes to mission creep. Uh, We have a great difficulty in stopping doing certain things when our strategy says we're going to do something else. It's always on top of that, right? And of course, I feel deeply ingrained in our sector. We think that our organizations are all unique. (laughs) They're not. They're not at all, in fact, right? So even from a program theory of change or what we offer programmatically, we are not that unique from each other. That is hugely overrated. Oh, and come I on, think, Pastor, we're all unique, just like everybody else. But you see my point, right? Because we have that difficulty in really honing in what is our unique value proposition in the ecosystem of NGOs, that's also, I think, why we have a harder time going after the funding that we need in order to have that impact that we want to have. How do you see that? There are two thoughts there. So really good good way that you put it. And I completely agree with you, by the way. 
So on the uniqueness point, yes, there is an institutional arrogance around. It's not just NGOs. It's also, for example, if you talk to IGOs, UN organizations, well, we are the UN. There's only one organization out there. Yeah, that's, that's true. But there are 20 other organizations who do the same stuff you do. You know, is, 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 are your statutes really that, is your diplomatic passport the key asset here? I don't think so. Yeah. I'm continuously uh, reminded when I, you know, I come from a business background, from a finance background. When you talk to business people, uh, even if you're dominating the market, there is a you know, more humble acknowledgement that you have very active, very fast, very good competitors. There is very few people who actually feel like, oh, we are some sort of market entitlement. You know, we, we deserve these customers. Yeah, we are competing and we are competing new every Monday morning again. You know, it's um, so never I, taking I it for granted, in other words. Yeah, and of course, there are exceptions to that rule and there are businesses which have difficult to copy it, tech, uh, you know, competitive advantages, but so are there with the NGOs. And then the other thing in terms of this moderating, you said that earlier, mod, um, managing our our assets, I think there's a generational problem within INGOs. If we look at uh, the INGOs of the 80s, and if you look you know, very, um, this is not a very evolved strategy, but I've looked at the balance sheets. Being the finance guy, I derive a lot of meaning from those. Okay. Yeah? And you kind of see that sort of 50 to 80% of the assets that are recorded in the balance sheets of the large INGO in the, yeah. in the year up to the mid-90s were tangible items. Offices, cars, uh, delivery mechanisms, planes, wells, drill, and drilling equipment. So like 70% and or, or not much far from that, from the value of the organization in financial terms has been tangible. You could touch it. Oh, it's that's a really machinery. It's a, it's a patent. It's a methodology. It's a way to dehydrate food into bags and deliver it halfway around the world. If you look at it right now, 90% is intangible. So that makes you appreciate your organization very differently. What is your intangible asset as an organization? It's your methodology. It's your people. It's your reputation. Yes. All of those are continuously fluid. And you can either actively manage that, or you could just be proud of it, lean back, and watch for it to erode. Yes, that's really interesting. Another thing that came to my mind is moving to a, a subset of chasing funding, and that is digitally enabled fundraising, right? So a number of years ago, when I still was an quote-unquote accidental academic at Syracuse University, with some colleagues, we did a couple of years of applied research on digital NGO campaigning platforms and digital mm -hmm. fundraising. More on the campaigning side, but still also we looked a little bit at the fundraising side. And it was really interesting to see how, so you had that search, you know, about what I'm going to say eight to 10 years ago, starting of the avas.org, change.org, Jatka in India, for instance, Compact in Germany as, as examples. Yeah. You know, there are now national platforms in many countries in the world for both campaigning and fundraising. Kiva, of course, give.org and so on. So what the research says, talking about generations, is that millennials and generation X, Y, and Z really insist that they want to take action on their own terms. What do I mean yeah. by that? They don't want a brick and mortar NGO to tell them when to get engaged, when to 
uh, fund, uh, when to give money, when to give their talent, when to go on the streets, etc. They want to take action on their own terms and in through their own social network because social proofing, the showing that I'm an active citizen vis-a-vis -vis my, my social peers is incredibly important, right? And we just saw how brick and mortar NGOs, the kind of legacy organizations compared to the digital NGO platforms really struggled with coming to terms with the fact that they could no longer just tell their supporters when to give money, when to go on the streets, etc. And that their, even their communications with their supporters needs to become bi-directional, both directions. So mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting comparison back then. So do you think that the digital part of fundraising is also related to this question of uh, chasing funding and how to go about that? Mm, that's a really good point they're making that, Oscar. Can I step back in the sort of finance director and strategy income planner uh, fashion here mm -hmm. and say, let's all locate the issue. So if you are in an organization where you say we need a level of unrestricted income, that is not restricted by any sort of governmental or earmarked by any uh, institutional or large philanthropic rules, then that is fine. Then you make the decision. We need the flexibility in our programming to direct resources at will into uh, different types of doing a different timing. Or we have we have certain expenses which we can never fund from restricted sources. So we need an unrestricted income stream. Mm -hmm. Then most people go to to what you just said, Oscar. Go to fundraising. But that is only one of four or five major ways to earn unrestricted funding. Sure. Yeah, so let's just be aware. You can do many other things. You can you know, provide commercial services in your sector. You can join framework contracts which are being issued. You can partner with larger implementers to develop services too. You can sell directly a product. You can offer consulting services. And then, yes, you can do fundraising. So that's that's where it sits. So let's just not immediately jump at this. Uh, that Good point. Yeah. If you are saying in fundraising, yes, we want to fundraise, then um, segmentation is key. Mm -hmm. You know, there is an element, if you let's assume you are quite a established NGO or a mid-sized, uh, ambitious NGO, then you, you're going to have some people that are still quite happy to donate at Christmas or at Ramadan or are, you know, following the emergency appeal or are just so outraged by local politics that they want to donate something there and they do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then there is, yeah. so that, that, that segment still exists and I think it's going to stay there as well. I'd, um, but there, you're right. And then we finally come to the point that you, the very good point you've made. There is a segment of people who are not just willing to give money and be told when to give money. And that segment needs to be communicated with very differently. And yes. I think it's spectacular that in the age of social problems, in the climate change, in the uh, you know, organizations, including that Greenpeace, have failed to do that. And I'm quite happy to name that here. They, they failed to engage with the uh, younger generation in the same way as, for example, the Extinction Rebellion has done. Um, now, the topic is not brand new. But the way that the extension of planning has, has grown organically is completely different, has basically overtaken in terms of raised funding the established climate NGOs, not just Greenpeace, others. Oh, um, That's really interesting because actually, and this just shows how everything is a continuing a spectrum, 
Greenpeace, and not only Greenpeace, but definitely was an early adopter of what Greenpeace calls, um, yes, a supporter-funded campaigning, right? A supporter-driven campaigning versus staff-driven campaigning and yes. fundraising to go with that. So they were actually an early adopter of trying to shift the paradigm. And yet you are saying, relative to, let's say, Extinction Rebellion, they were not as successful. Well, because at this age, when they rose and when they grew a lot, mm-hmm. yeah, these traditional NGOs, it's not just the climate area. It's also in, you know, if you could look at Black Lives Matters and uh, other uh, INGOs that address um, racial discrimination in your country, in the US, for example, same in Europe. Those movements needed a physical brick and mortar home in order to be coordinated. Coordination, information, campaigning was done centrally. That brick and mortar home is just no longer needed. Exactly. And the minute almost it wasn't any more needed, the supporters went elsewhere. So far more dynamic platform based. Yes, yes, exactly. Now that's a topic, that's a big topic, Chris, maybe that we can take up another time. I'd definitely be interested in that. But before we close, I wanted to bring up one more thing. And this might just be an anecdotal observation, but I was struck by it a number of times. Talking about culture. Organizational culture, one of the topics I so love. I've seen quite a few NGOs where the culture is not one of a spirit of we all are responsible for business development and for raising raising revenue, whether it's through fundraising or any of the other forms that you, you mentioned, right? That it's a shared responsibility. And I found that really troublesome when I saw that because... I was thinking to myself, so where do staff in this organization think their salaries are paid from, right? It's a little similar to in higher education where I worked for a while and where some professors are quite inaccessible to students outside the times when they teach. And I would always think, being a lecturer myself at that time, I know where my salary comes from. It comes from students who are paying tuition. It's not the only source, but it's the most important source, right? So that always worried me, and particularly what it says about maybe a culture of entitlement to the money that comes in. How do you respond to that? I think, again, it's a leadership issue. I think there are organizations where everybody needs to do what you've just pointed at. Be aware where the funding comes from, and, get, and everybody's a fundraiser. Everybody represents to the donors and the and the supporters and the income generating business and whatever whatever income stream there is. Then there are organizations that are more specialized, that, that where the program management is so you know technical or so local that you, you you can't reasonably do that as well and mm-hmm. trying to make the team raise funds as well as program manage will result in the team member just doing a little bit of fundraising friday afternoons before the weekend yeah and i don't uh, mean it that way mm-hmm. yeah, but, so i think we need to be you know let's let's take take a simile here we were i'm not allowed to say names right now but we're working with a business uh, with an organization right now a um, not-for-profit organization and I used in the boardroom there a simile of, of an airplane producer. Say, say uh, you know, I live in Hamburg. Um, we have Airbus here. You would never tell the engineer who builds the plane mm-hmm. to worry where the money for building the plane comes from. 
That is the that is the task of the finance department of the sales department, mm-hmm. effectively. But that means the sales department has the power to tell the engineer what plane to build, because mm-hmm. they know. So if you are a program manager and it's your job is so technical and so remote or so deserving of attention that you cannot reasonably be expected to fundraise as well, mm-hmm. then you should also have the, humi- the, the humbleness, the humility to say, but then my income people, my business development people have yeah. the right to tell me what programs to deliver because that's ultimately where they come from. So it needs to be a very clear leadership decision. Where does that responsibility lie to grow what amount of funding in what amount of time? Yes. And I think there is a severe, and I would love to hear from you, I've noticed a severe leadership failure with uh, NGOs in particular, where the leaders basically, where the, the income isn't growing as much or is even declining in real terms, and therefore they democratize funding and fundraising, make it everyone's problem so that nobody's ultimately responsible for it. Yeah, so you're, you're nuancing what I what I just said. I was thinking, Chris, that when you said the technical program person does need to be listening to the business development side of the organization, where does the income come from, right? Needs to be sensitive to that. I was thinking, yes, as long as, and this goes back to our beginning of our conversation, as long as we have gone after sources of revenue that actually fit with the impact that we seek to have, right? And that are allowing us to fund what we are uniquely best suited for. That's exactly what we said initially. That's that's the leadership challenge again, saying let's design the ideal funding pot we need for our impact and then strive towards that. Yes, because otherwise the program person who you just brought up as a case, if you will, as a case study, might say, I do not want to listen to the people who bring in the income when those people are just going after opportunities that are out there where donors are seeking, you know, where donors are imprinting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. If, if, if your income team is only chasing the next donor funding, exactly. I get a grant, implement the grant, panic around, get the next grant, then your business model is not worth being called a business model. Then you have you have made us. The leadership has made a, str- a wrong chance, and I would love to ask you, Tosca. I see a serious failure of senior leadership, board, executive level, right on the top, to acknowledge that they are on top, and this whole idea about moderating and leading with everyone and, and agility, which I'm a great fan of, has almost led to a. I mean, I've noticed a real, with some organizations, incidentally, those organizations who are, at least in financial terms, failing, I've noticed that leadership is incredibly invested into devolving their responsibilities into the middle management, and therefore they can't possibly be blamed for that. Is that a scapegoat for being unable to fund your course? Wow, you're you're really making us end on a, on a big question. Here's what the conundrum I see, and I do not know the answer to this. On the one hand, there are strong calls in our sector for facilitative leadership, for shared leadership, participatory leadership that have maybe, conceptually at least, have a risk 
that they become leaderless. Like you say, yeah. we're, we're top leadership from a positional power perspective, top leadership. So those who are in formal positional power are devolving too much leadership decisions, you're saying, to the middle level where it kind of then dissipates. So on the one hand, we have this call for more distributed leadership, right? You see that also in the strong interest in feminist leadership. And on the other hand, you're posing this problem. You say, but listen, where are the decisions ultimately needs to be taken? And are we still able to chart a direction? Do you see the, the tension or the dilemma? Yeah. That- I would go a little stronger in here, even saying if you're a leader who's measuring her or his progress on devolving your leadership, then uh, you must also be prepared to work more, frankly. So there's the captain and then the, the rowers of the ship. If you think your ship is better captained by a lot of rowers, then the captain should go and take a seat right next to the rower and start rowing. You know, start talking to the clients, start talking to the program managers, design this grant proposal, do the grunt work, so to speak. The grunt work. Yeah. But what I see sometimes is that leaders who are not in the day-to-day business have the luxury of not being in the day-to-day business. Right. Because they are charged with thinking strategically, thinking about, you know, not the next quarter, but in two years' time and building the organization that can thrive in this environment. They don't do that, but they also don't take a seat in the day-to-day business. So what do they do? You're wondering what they do. Okay. Well, I think, Chris, we should... Bring it to a close here because yes. you're bringing up a big and very provocative topic. And we did promise our listeners that we would provide for some provocative uh, discussions. I think we, we ended up there. Next time, we're going to focus on chasing impact. And I look forward to continuing this discussion then. I look forward to it too. And have a good weekend and qu- Merry Christmas to you. Hey, and Merry Christmas to you and a, a very good end of the year. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul & Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.